Welcome to the Tailoring Talk Show with me, your host, Roberto Rivilla. I'm a bespoke tailor, menswear designer, and owner of Roberto Rivilla London Suit and Shirt Makers. This is the podcast where you drop in for the threads, but often leave with something quite unexpected. If you haven't already, please support the show by subscribing. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please help me out by leaving a rating and a review. It's time for part two of the massive tailoring talk James Bondathon, where we follow the James Bond series in order, ticking off each movie as each month goes by. My guests and I will be deep diving into each film, covering everything from our overall review and digging into the clothes, the gadgets, the cast, our favourite moments from each instalment and much, much more. So being part two, this means we go back in time to 1963, Yes, it is from Russia with Love. I'm joined once again by Philip Rahman. Philip, how are you, sir? Bobby, I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Really good to have you back. Thank you so much. I had so much fun on the Doctor No review. Phil, you thought it was just going to be the two of us, but we have some gate crashes and some pretty cool ones at that. Yes, my fabulous colleagues and dear friends from the Plate Paul's Turn podcast are in the tailoring talk house the ppt voice of reason if we were the ghostbusters he would be our race stands it's alex hansford alex how are you i'm very well thank you bobby very good nice to meet you philip all right alex i worked on that one i worked on that one all day um and not just our intrepid fearless leader but also now known as the sexiest voice in podcasting history (laughs) It's the one and only John Evans. John, how are you? Give I'm us some well. of that sexy baritone. I, I'm very well, thank you. I'm 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 uncomfortable with this um, nom de plume. Um, I, I always sound awful when I listen to my own voice. That's very embarrassing. <laughs> not to us, you don't, <laughs> okay. and not to many admirers out there. Um, the the numbers on on. The, the episodes of Tailoring Talk where you've guested are shooting through the roof now, John. I'm, I'm, not, sure Becca feels, I'm not sure Becca feels the same way, but I mean, oh. we, yeah, you, you, your voice is, is special. Uh, anyway, so from Russia with Love, um, I actually finished watching it about 15 minutes before starting to record. <laughs> um, but we did actually watch it on Sunday and then we got 15 minutes before the end and uh, got a bit tired. It was a bit late because we'd been uh, binge watching Ozark before that and we're trying to finish the first part of season one of that. That's for another podcast. Um, I know that you all saw it this past weekend as well. Uh, John and Alex, have you seen the Connery Bonds before and how familiar are you with the source material? Uh, Alex. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I, I did. I, I have a vague memory of them. I do have the um, Bond box set, so um, I, I remember at one point going through all of them at that point. But before that, it just seems to be something that was on TV, like in bank holidays and Christmas, and and I always used to be. It always used to be something that you could, you could always watch and pick it up at any point, and you you wouldn't really have missed anything. Um, and I just I just really in, in, enjoyed them. I think the other thing that was strange about them, and I think it's just the age, is um, there was quite a lot of quiet moments, and we'll, we'll come on to that in the film. Uh, but yeah, so what I liked about it is like sometimes you just see someone walking around a, a, a lair or something, and then you'd be like, 
hmm, I wonder what I've, I've, I've sort of chanced onto. Oh, I think I'll watch this. And, and then you'd find out a bit more about it. And so the pace was very interesting. Nice to go back to it. Yeah, it's really funny because we we talked previously about this whole, you know, I think it's our age group. Um, you know, Bond just happened to be something that was on on bank holidays, family gatherings. It was always on in the background and you sort of just dropped in and out. Uh, John, how about you? Um, si- similarly to, to Alex, it was very much um, something you'd watch uh, after searching through the uh, the Radio Times to see what was on at Christmas, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, there's a Bond film. Um, if people remember the Radio Times. Oh and my again, god! The Radio Times. Yeah. That Chris, Radio Times at Christmas was like the best thing. You get a bar, and my dad you circle all the, um, all the all the programs you wanted to watch. Yeah, yeah, totally. I used to spend hours just reading the Radio Times. Oh, memories. See, but yes, it was um, again something that you you could watch in any order and enjoy over and over again. It was one of those one of those film franchises that you could rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. And I think that's probably why it's so successful. Thought for a second we were talking about the Radio Times store. <laughs> Just one of those franchises you could read and reread and reread. Um, so uh, I think we should start. No, actually, do you know what? I, I should have done the icebreaker question before. This is the problem. I'm getting confused between the two podcasts that um, that we do. Um, but yeah, actually, I've just thought of an icebreaker question because Phil hasn't met Alex and John, and similarly, John and Alex have not been exposed to Phil before. My question is, if you could be any villain in the James Bond universe, who would you be? And that could be a villain who's actually in the films, or it could be one that you make up on the spot. And I'm going to start with... I'm going to start with John, because I get the feeling that John would have thought about this before. Well, I've always, in fact, even before you've asked the question, um, Bobby, I, I would lo- I love to have been Jaws. Oh, yeah. I, I think he's one of the best villains because of his redemption, redemption story and how he kind of, I think he was in more than one Bond film, wasn't he? He became like a running character for a while. Yeah. Um, and I think his final appearance was in Moonraker. And I love the fact that, uh, and I think it was... Um, Roger Moore's Bond that was always sort of at odds with with uh, Jaws, and I, I loved I loved this, this the fake teeth that can bend metal and things. But I like I like I like the fact that they're always at odds. But then at the end of Moonraker, they become buddies uh, and help each other. Uh, and he even gets the girls in the um, Jaws. He gets the little girl. With he the, does, the yeah, tails. yeah. Uh, again, thinking back now, <laughs> not sure how appropriate that was, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, but. Um, but he, he found true love. He found true love, and um, and I think that's for me. If I had to be a villain, you know, I'd like to feature in more than one film, so you get you know your repeat repeat paychecks. But also, um, he was kind of an unusual villain in that he was not very clever, but still survived through strength and sort of weird kind of anti charisma. And in the end, he had a redemption story. So I'd be I'd be Jaws, I think. I used to wear a brace myself, so, you know, I kind of sympathise with him. <laughs> he was a very simple soul, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Uh, but he kind of started off, well, I don't know, because I haven't seen any of those films as a fully grown adult. Um, I don't know why I had to qualify that. Um, but uh, I remember him being a little bit terrifying when he first appeared. And then obviously by Moonraker, he was just like a big cuddly sort of giant. 
And he's like, a, he's the nearest thing that Bond have got to to a Wookiee, isn't he? Basically, yeah, that's yeah. it. Exactly. He he sort of became uh, Chewbacca to Roger Moore's Han Solo. Um, yeah, I can't believe I just popped a Star Wars reference, and then we're talking about Bond. Uh, Phil, I would have to say Odd Job. Um, I feel like Odd Job was how where James Bond went with someone like Kato from um, Green Hornet but they couldn't quite go as far as Kato. But um, I always like, you know, the pure strength and just no-nonsense attitude that he had. Um, and I just love the fact that um, of all the weapons that he could have, he had a hat that could just decapitate people. He's, he's my villain, and uh, that's who I'd go for. So when you said Kato, Phil, I was thinking of um, uh, the Pink Panther there. Now, Kato's... Kato, oh, Kato! Kato, 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 Kato. Kato's Green Hornet. So Kato is from no, Green you're Hornet. you're right, yeah. And, uh, but he was also, he was also in uh, he was also the oh, Pink I, Panther. I, I, I never saw Pink Panther. I'm, I've missed out. I haven't seen Pink Panther. Uh, uh, Inspector Clouseau, uh, yeah, I can see Bobby's face right now. I know, I haven't seen it. I had it. the same yeah. face. Uh, well, he, he was always... Uh, he was paid... He was like a manservant paid by Inspector Clouseau to purposefully... Um, surprise him, ambush him, and try and kill him in his own flat. Right. Okay. To trade so that he he could acquire the kind of the fighting skills he needed to go out on his cases, and it was always very hilarious because he'd just trash his his flat every single time. Fair enough. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Phil, oh, Phil, in between, because we're only doing one of these a month, you've got to go and watch the Pink oh, Panther movies. They're classics. They're absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that's uh, that's just something I missed out on. Um, I think by the time Pink Panther came out. The only version I saw was the cartoon version, so I couldn't make the distinction between that and the original film. So I think I just missed out, basically. Okay, well, go check them out. That's your homework in between now and whatever the next Bond movie is. Alex, I couldn't imagine you as a Bond villain, so I feel really bad <laughs> asking this question. But uh, No, I, 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 have, I have one prepared. Um, I would be Elliot Carver which is uh, the media mogul from uh, Tomorrow, Tomorrow yes. Never Dies. Jonathan Price's That's character. That's it, yeah, yeah. exactly. And he's obviously a bit of a take-up on Rupert Murdoch. But, um, but yeah, so I think that would be perfect for me because I'd have my own satellite, which would be, I mean, it's just geeky enough for me. So that would that would work quite nicely. Yeah, it would make, uh, like, torrenting and stuff a lot easier yeah. as well, wouldn't it? It would. I'd get some pretty good um, download speeds. So that would be all right. <laughs> Don't worry, no one listens to this podcast. No one's going to catch you. Um, so, um, so, uh, so, yeah, so over to me, I guess. Um, I would be um, Robert Carlyle's character in The World Is Not Enough, um, if only for the single, simple reason that his chick was uh, Sophie Marceau, and I absolutely fancied the pants off her when I was a teenager because obviously in French class, when we did GCSE, La Boom was one of the movies that uh, that we uh, that we had to watch, uh, and that was not an you know that was not a hardship at all. Uh, one of my more favourite homework assignments. I'm drifting here. Anyway, so uh, there we go. Uh, other than that, I really can't think of anyone because I've always fancied myself as James Bond. That's why I've got about four tuxes in the wardrobe. Um, so. I think uh, we should get into From Russia With Love. Uh, brief synopsis, From Russia With Love is the second film in the James Bond series produced by Eon Productions, released in 1963. 
It was directed by Terence Young and based on Ian Fleming's 1957 novel of the same name. Following the events of Dr. No, Bond is sent to assist in the defection of Soviet consulate clerk Tatiana Romanova in Turkey, where Spectre plans to avenge Bond's killing of their agent, Dr. No. So this film, they they basically greenlit it before uh, Dr. No was complete. Um, but they didn't know, obviously, at this stage whether Dr. No was going to be a success. So Cubby Broccoli also and Harry Saltzman also greenlit a film with um, Bob Hope and... The poster was in this one of the scenes. Uh, it was Call Me... I can't remember, but I'll look it up. Um, That's a strange <clears throat> So they greenlit that... <laughs> I don't know, but I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, 1963. Uh, look it Very up. meta. Uh, it starred Bob Hope and Anita Ekberg. Uh, I, know, yeah, I know a, what you mean. Yeah, Call Me... Yes. Uh, something. It's the, it's the scene, um, just to jump ahead, where there are... Um, assassinating uh, the rival Gypsy King, I think, and it, he opened the window that's in Anita Ekberg's mouth and tries yes. to climb out the window. Yes, exactly. That's it. So that's yeah. the that's the Easter egg, if you like. Um, so yeah, so they greenlit this, and they also greenlit the Bob Hope Anita Ekberg film, um, so that at least the studio had one surefire hit on its hands because they didn't know what was going to happen with this. Um, Doctor No was obviously a success, as we know. Um, they the other reason they greenlit Doc, uh, from Russia with Love was because they wanted to keep as much of the same cast and crew together. So if you look at Doctor No from Russia with Love and then Thunderball, nineteen sixty two, sixty three, sixty four, they were virtually filmed back to back almost, um, and they did that deliberately to try and keep everybody together. Um, so a little bit of trivia there for you. Um, but this one kind of, it was a less jarring opening for me because as I discussed with Phil on the last one on Dr. No, that having grown up a <clears throat> kind of child of Roger Moore onwards, being used to the cold open in the Bond, so you get, you know, him and the gun barrel sequence and then it cuts to a big action sequence and then it's the title credit. And obviously that didn't happen in Dr. No, but it does happen in this one. Um, so we get the gun barrel sequence and then it cuts to um, uh, Sean Connery sort of running around what looks like some sort of maze. Um, almost half expected to see Jack Nicholson wandering around in there as well. Um, and he's being chased by Quint from Jaws. Um, and it turns out that this is actually a training, a spectre training camp, I think. Yeah. Um, because he he gets killed, but then his handler or whatever comes over and, and it's a Mission Impossible-style mask that he rips off and, and we find out that it's basically a sort of assassin's training camp or whatever. Um, it was really funny because I, I obviously knew Robert Shaw was in the movie because I think I was talking to a client recently about what we were doing with the podcast and in relation to Bond. And, uh, and and he just mentioned Robert Shaw. And I was like, oh, wow, Robert Shaw's in it. And he was like, yeah, he's like such a great villain. Um, but if he hadn't told me that, I wouldn't have recognised him straight away. I didn't realise he was so physically imposing um, in his youth. 
Oh yeah, he was. He, I mean, he's not only in that; he was also in uh, the Sting with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And you could tell he was a real intense character in that. Um, and you can see that in a lot of his films, he's quite an antagonistic as well. I mean, like all his co-stars, Roy Scheider and Robert Redford, have all said he's really difficult to work with. But he gets the best out of his coast of the people that are working around him. So the stars are there, and then he's yeah. there you know, alongside, but he gets the best out of the main stars that are in the films, which is real significant yeah. what Robert Shaw can do. I remember yeah. him from Force 10 from, um, from Never Road as well, which is a really cracking war movie. Um, and he's, you know, he looks very similar there, but you're right. I, I guess um, when we reach the era of Jaws, he's obviously a lot older and he's kind of shrunk a little bit and he's more of a wizened old man, but he still has that kind of air of um, don't waste my time around him, doesn't yeah. he? Which he has in his film as well. Yeah, Alex. What did you think of the opening sequence for this one? Yeah, it was good. It, it's it's really nice. It kind of jumps you straight into it, doesn't it? Um, but I was most impressed by the uh, face mask, personally, because I just wasn't expecting it. So it really threw me. I was like, "Oh, hang on a minute. This is this is uh, this is very Mission Impossible." But of course, it was before that. But um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. It was a good start. And then we're going to get onto the title sequence, which deserves its own own space. Let, let me let me just let me just interject there about about that opening scene because uh, I watched it in four K, which is an interesting thing to watch a nineteen sixty three film in four K. But uh, I watched it with my other half, and the first thing she said when when she saw Bond was, "Oh, I guess this four K version, you can really see the makeup he's wearing, and and you can notice really clearly um, his pale skin and slightly sort of kind of rough edged." almost like brush strokes on his face where they maybe, and of course I think that was on purpose to show it was actually a mask and not his real, because mm. if you look at Bond later on the film, he's very tanned, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. And I thought actually what a really, really clever touch to show it's a mask, even when he's just Bond with, you know, with some special makeup to make it look like it's slightly plasticky. Yeah. It was brilliant. And I, I thought it was a great opening and it, cause it sort of drops you straight into some action and you don't quite know what's going on. But I was looking at Connery's face and I was saying to Carolina, I said, there's something really weird going on here because mm. he just looks slightly off. It was a bit like, you know, we talk about Uncanny Valley, don't we, with with all of the kind of CGI characters, you know, bring, bringing Peter Cushing back to life in Rogue One and so on. And it really just, I had that feeling. And so when he gets killed and then they whip the mask off, it was a real mixture of, both kind of shocked, surprised, but also, ah, okay, now it makes sense uh, why he looked a little bit sort of weird. Um, but yeah, then we jump into the to the title credits, the title sequence, and it is this is more the kind of traditional Bond sort of title sequence we know. Now, another bit of trivia. So originally, that initial action sequence with Grant and, and fake Bond, um, they were meant to superimpose the title credits over that entire action sequence but it didn't quite work out that way. And then they got the idea for the title sequence because um, I can't remember the names of people, but one of the art directors, uh, basically, uh, I think he was giving some sort of talk or something at college, and in front of the projector, one of the students walked in front of the projector, and the, the kind of words sort of moved across his T-shirt, and then that's where the, the sort of idea for that title sequence kind of germinated. Which I thought was quite a cool, and then then basically the cameraman just 
didn't want it storyboarded. He just wanted to sort of go in the studio with the camera and sort of just play around. I yeah, bet I'm he sure did. Quite, I bet, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with the well, apparently she had to slow her movements down and her undulations had to be more controlled because otherwise, because shooting on colour film wasn't as fast when you were dealing with text as shooting black and white. And so he had to get her to slow her undulations down to make sure that the words kind of travelled across her body and so on. So I bet he had an amazing time. Well, there was one bit where they didn't have to do that at all. They just had 007s from Russia with Love and she's just shaking herself. You know, yeah, and, the, and the two O's are very strategically placed. <laughs> Alex, you know, uh, yeah, Alex we shouldn't see Alex giving Alex his little. <laughs> yeah. It's a good job, it's an audio words. only podcast. <laughs> it is, yeah. Alex is going, you know, we've got John, you know, sexiest podcasting voice, we've got Alex, sexiest, sexiest podcasting booty. Yeah, <laughs> look at that. Bit of Alex Hansford belly dancing there. Um, so I feel really privileged this evening. <laughs> um, so then we get into the plot. Now, the funny thing is, right, and I don't know if this because I just don't really pay attention to Bond films that I've seen before because it's all about the gadgets and the cars and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I kind of sort of managed to follow the plot of Dr. No and of this as well. Um, and they are kind of, they're not simple. I don't think they're simple. John? I, I, do you know what this film reminded me of? It reminded me of, and I hope I get the name right because I've seen it so many times, but I always get it wrong. This film reminded me of uh, a very famous Cary Grant film. North is it North by Northwest? Yep. Yes. It had the same vibe to it, which was, you know, the the, the main um, protagonist Bond and companion, which is obviously um, Tanya, uh, and kind of moving from country to country, but it, but at the same time, still quite a mellow pace to it. And I think you, you can almost see. The um, the zeitgeist, the style of filmmaking of the sixties in this film, um, and I found that fascinating because um, uh, my other half was convinced she'd never seen it before because it was so unusual and different to the Bond films we've seen more recently. Um, it was a really interesting view into history. I thought this film. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, hundred percent. North by Northwest is is actually one of the Hitchcock films I remember seeing as a kid. And absolutely loving, like being totally engrossed in it. I just thought it was so cool. Um, Call me Buana. Sorry, is the is the film that they greenlit at the same time as this? Thank you, Alex. It's always handy having you around. The power of the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And also, when you look at the wardrobe for um, Sean Connery in this, especially with the uh, with with the trilby and so on as well. Um, got a question about all of that, but it's for later on in the film. So, um, so what happens? Uh, title sequence, and then we get this whole plot about Spectre. Basically, um, they come up with this plan to get hold of this cryptography machine um, from the lector. The lector. The lector. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a cryptography device. So they want to get hold of that from the Russians, from the Istanbul consulate. This is where I kept getting confused because the film's called From Russia With Love, but it's in Istanbul. Um, so basically they have uh, Dr. Evil's um, lover, uh, Rosa Kleb, who's a sort of... <laughs> Did she not remind you of Dr. Evil's lover? <laughs> 
Well, you have you have to remember that um, the Austin Powers films borrowed massively from Doctor No and from Russian with Love. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- there's there's so many characters here that directly have been taken in, into a. Austin Powers. Unfortunately, a lot of us remember Austin Powers more than these Bond films, and so it feels like the reverse, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, even to the point where they're using the characters number three and number five, you know, and he's thinking, oh, number two, you know, it's just, you know, it's pretty Um but uh, but yeah, so they they need to steal this cryptography device. So so they come up with this sort of plot to. Um, because uh, they want to get revenge on Bond, don't they, for doing away with Doctor No and ruining their plans in the last film? Uh, and that's where uh, Richard Shaw, Robert Shaw, Richard Shaw, Robert, Robert Shaw. Shaw, Robert Shaw. That's the one. Donald. That's Donald, where Quinn. That's Donald where Red Quinn's Grant. character comes in. He's called Grant, isn't he? Grant. Yes. That's where yeah. Grant character sort of comes in. So he's his mission is to kill Bond, and then Tatiana is uh, a um she's a basically a clerk at the consulate and she's recruited by them and the idea is that uh, correct me if i'm wrong but what i got from it is that she's meant to make bond fall in love with her and then he'll do anything for her bond gets the lector machine they kill bond take the lector thing and then specter can give that to the russians who they've obviously promised it to am i right yeah yeah oh okay no, that's cool. perfect damn it <laughs> No more, no more discussion. Your there. research was, was but, accurate. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I've thought a lot about this. Um, so then, and also I only saw it yesterday. So, um, so then we get Bond being briefed in London and being told by M to go off and sort this all out, and um, we see Desmond Llewellyn for the first time because I complained well i didn't complain but i i noted in the last one with phil that we didn't get a big q scene it was literally he was given he was basically told that his beretta was a woman's gun and that he had to use a walter ppk and they gave him a walter ppk in a case and then the armory guy just buggered off and that was it whereas in this one we got a little bit more um and obviously it's exciting for us it wouldn't have been for audiences at the time but for me i was so excited to see see him there yeah he um, looks so young yeah he, i know and, and oh. although i just i i don't understand how much is a sovereign in, in, in oh, old money. i think it was tw- i think it was 20 wasn't it 25 pounds a sovereign that's quite a lot which in those is quite a lot i mean it was obviously the the, the most compact way of giving him a lot of cash yeah, yeah so, so. and he had what 50 sovereigns and every sovereign's 50, 25 yeah. quid yeah. so yeah, okay. so there was. I think there were twenty-five sovereigns in each strip. In each that strip, yeah. Out. So, yeah. So let's talk about this attaché case. So he's given a case, and uh, the first thing he's shown is how to open it because there's like a gas canister thing that magnetizes and sits on top of it. And if you open it in a normal way, then it'll explode in your face. But obviously, you have to turn the dials the other way and then you open it and then it doesn't explode in your face and um and then what else was in there there was the knife so like you had, a, the knife you had some powder inside of it yeah okay you had a folding yeah. sniper gun as well didn't you yeah folding That's sniper right. gun yeah well, very good very good this is the, like the generation game you had the ammo <laughs> sort of uh, in the side as well 
and and you've got yeah, a knife exploding yeah. exploding, t- exploding talc oh, as well exploding talc yeah exploding talc a knife yeah any stuff, more stuff any toy more? stuff any stuff more? teddy bear there was the gun the, as well the <laughs> there was the big rifle as well that you could build up yeah yeah, yeah. but the the um I, th- I think the gadgets that he's given are you know, again, they're all practical things that you can use, right? You know, 25 sovereigns on each side that just in case you need to go and get yourself some lunch or entertain a lady or something or pay off someone who's trying to kill you. Um, talcum powder, always good for sweaty situations. I really like the whole being able to convert his his gun into a sniper thing though that was really cool what was good is that he used all of them in the episode not mm. it wasn't it wasn't just like oh yeah you know sovereigns we're not going to use that it was like oh yeah no no um you could use that as as um a bribe for the for the uh, baddie great yeah. you know he managed to find a use for every single one of them yeah yeah and he used the uh he used the sniper thing more than once as well That's right. which was really mm. good it wasn't like you know just use it once and you know, forget about it after that or lose it to a villain or leave it lying around somewhere. I mean, he really did keep that case with him all the way through the film. I was so impressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And John, the, um, did, did you have any favourites from that little box of tricks? Uh, I thought the exploding tart was awesome. <laughs> it's so funny. Because <laughs> you kind of, again, it's a very clever narrative device because you know at some point it's going to get used. So it, it, straight away, a, a little a little gadget can build tension because you're, you're wondering where's it going to get used and how's it going to get used. Um, and whenever you see the suitcase, you think, "Oh, what's the situation going to be?" And I like that. I like the exploding talc. Um, and uh, you know, we've we've often dropped cans of talc, and it does the same sort of thing, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. There's another substance that does the same sort of thing as well. But again, clean podcast. <laughs> I think as for me, my favourite part of the. Um, of the box of tricks for me was just the the rifle in the sense that um, you saw it in its smallest form. So it was easily compact and it was clear in terms of like how to put it together and where all the compartments were. And it was used more than once. So for me, it was the, uh, it was the rifle. So he, when he, when he gets out of there, there's a really inappropriate moment with him and money penny. I mean, really inappropriate. You know, like where he's almost like he's going to sort of lick her neck or something. I don't know what. And then obviously he gets interrupted. It was by it him. was okay in the sixties. So, you know, it was okay in the sixties. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did find it a little bit cringy. Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of instances of that throughout throughout the film, aren't there? I mean, there's the, the lady at the beginning on the canal boat. Yeah. Um, it, among other things, the, he slaps poor old Tanya out a bit as well, doesn't he? Really? Yeah. yeah. The, gy- yeah. the gypsy girls. Yeah. yeah. Oh God! Yeah, two of them as yeah. well. And that was and that was another thing that messed with my head, you know, because they went to a village. There was a trap that was laid. Half the vi- dozens of those gypsies were killed. Yet those two women still wanted to fight over Bond. Made no <laughs> sense whatsoever, you know. But it's just loose bits yeah. of plot that they would put into these films, and it was acceptable. Yeah, I mean, he. I mean, getting to the gypsy settlement um before that that's where we first meet karim karim bay who's the he's the head of mi6's branch in istanbul and uh ali karim is is basically gonna help bond with whatever it is he needs to do um but then he's attacked and um 
Uh, and then this is where we start to see Grant just starting to pop up here and there. Um, and he's very much like a, a massive blonde, bleached blonde shadow, isn't he? And he doesn't talk. He's very silent. And that just adds to not just the mystery, but I mean, I, I wouldn't have wanted to run into that guy. He, he was really, really scary. Yeah, I mean, he's emotionless from the, right from the very first point that you meet him. So the very first time you see him, you know, you don't actually know that he's going to be selected by Spectre. Then later on, he's basically being massaged by this uh, half-naked woman, and he's completely emotionless by that. He then meets the uh, uh, number three, who hits him with a um, knuckle duster duster. and doesn't even flinch. And then throughout, he just pops out, and you don't hear him say anything. And this was back in 63. I don't think he'd even done the sting by this point. So he would have been relatively unknown, but from an acting performance, it was fantastic because you got a sense of real danger and, you know, he was intense and you were, you could see he was capable of a lot and you thought, well, how's Bond going to defeat him? Is he going to defeat him? And that was just running through until, until later. It was a conscious decision um, to have him not speak. And later on in the film, when he does speak, he only speaks in the voices of other agents he never, ever uses his own voice. I found that such a fascinating sort of choice for that character. And I think it was really, really effective. Um, but also you kind of, if you're not able to keep up with the plot, which to be fair, it is quite hard to do because by the time you get to the gypsy settlement and then there's the, I don't even, I can't even remember what they were doing that there. That gypsy settlement I've seen, the whole scene is absolute bonkers. Yeah, it's mental. It's just um, the most weird kind of jolting narrative arc within the film that is just bonk. I mean, I, I appreciated it. I thought it was hilarious, but it's just bonkers. Yeah. So um, for everyone listening at home, by the way, I should have said this at the start. Um, there are going to be spoilers. So for some reason, you haven't seen this film. We've had a few years. Um, yeah. I mean, you've only had a, nearly 50, 60 years. Nearly 60 seen. years. Um, but, yeah, I don't but, think I mean, it would ruin the off. film if you got the spoilers anyway. I think you'd you'd still enjoy it because it's still a good film. But it would. Uh, I don't think there's anything there. You go, oh no, wow, I never saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all know how it ends. You know, Bond gets killed at the end of No Time to Die. Out. Oh. Um, so... <laughs> Can't believe you did that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, this this whole uh, tailoring talk on the font has gone in the bin. Too, um, too but yeah, but no, John's absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> um, that gypsy settlement thing was absolutely nuts, right? Because they they've got the the head of the gypsy people um, who basically looks like the guy that runs the car wash down the road from me, and is very loud and is very jolly and. And, it, you know, it's like there's this fight that's about to take place to the death between these two gorgeous girls in the camp. And uh, it's basically that they're fighting over which of them's going to marry his son or something. Uh, I mean, I lost that plot thread because when they came out, I just all rhyme and reason went out of my head. But um, and, and John, you know, Bond is kind of sitting there kind of sort of half bemused and half sort of kind of concerned about this whole thing. Um and then all hell breaks loose because they, the camp gets attacked. And then this kind of big fight shootout scene is absolutely nuts. 
And then Grant is there in the background, basically picking people off, making sure that Bond doesn't get killed. If Grant wasn't there, this Bond would be dead. I think if it was Daniel Craig Bond, he would have survived. I'm talking now hypothetical situations, by the way. This is this is Bobby's own headcanon here going on right now. <laughs> it's going, yeah, it's gone on a tangent. Uh, I think Timothy Dalton could have made it. Roger Moore definitely would have died because he would have just been busy smooching all of the uh, all of the beautiful gypsy girls. And uh, his George Lazenby would have got killed because he's just really tall, like easy target. And Pierce, Pierce Brosnan, I think Pierce Brosnan would have made it with style. He'd have driven his remote control BMW through through the crowd, wouldn't he? Basically, and mowed them down. Oh, that seven <laughs> series, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, bloody cyclist. Using his mobile phone. <laughs> um, but I mean, but it was actually quite well. I thought it was well staged, and it was there was more action in that scene than we had in the whole of the previous film. So already they've upped the ante. Reactions. Uh, let's go to Alex. Actually, um, yeah, no, honestly, it, it's just. Yeah, it's just I, I really enjoyed it, but I can't remember half of it already. <laughs> I just the thing, what well, things that I remember, um, I've got it on the background as well, just to try and jog my memory. Um, but things that I I, I I remember are I remember that there's a, um, what's the word like a periscope that goes into a yeah. room, uh, into the, the, the it's room. Into the, it's into the Russian embassy. Into the embassy, which... I mean, is, is, going out, is it popping out the floor underneath their chair? Going, yeah. it's, well, it's, I mean, why would you like see that? It's in the fireplace or something. Like, but I yeah. really yeah, want to see like, what how? that would look like from the other perspective. I just, they couldn't <laughs> do it. it was, but it was just... How are they not seeing this thing in their room, right? They've been spying on them for ages because <laughs> Kerim is so proud of it as well. When he takes Bond through the catacombs underneath. Yeah, that's right. Didn't, they, didn't, the didn't they explain that? that? Didn't they say that it was like a gift from the British Navy? So they must have rigged yes, it and installed it, it in such a way that it was probably put into some kind of piping that they couldn't see and then it allowed them to just spy on them if they wanted yeah, to. And they, I, he, I imagine, Phil, I imagine that there was maybe in that area, there was one of those like um, stuffed animal displays in like a glass bell case. Yeah. <laughs> and I think perhaps that maybe one of the peacocks, their head was going up and down. That was the top of the periscope. Yeah. Stuffed like a stuffed animal case. <laughs> yeah. That, Something really, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. There's so much kitsch decor in this film. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, every room, every edge of the room was, was, was gold filigree, wherever you were, the hotel, the embassy, you know, the local shop, whatever. So there must have been like a sort of stuffed animal. You know what? Because, you, know. you know what? I have been to a family holiday in a hotel that was decorated like that when I was a kid. I'm sure of it. You know what I mean? So that, to me, that was just, that's the height of fashion. And, you know, and, and this is 63. So it was probably very high tech and very well decorated at the time. You know, <laughs> who knows? Uh, we, we, after, after this mental set piece, um, Tatiana meets Bond at his hotel suite and then they get down to business. Where he's got the energy from, I don't know, because literally it's not long after he's basically, you know, sort of had his way with both, we assume, with both of the uh, lovely ladies from the Gypsy Settlement. Um, but this was like another, like, really... I was so creeped out because obviously then Spectre, it, there's like a see-through, one-way kind of mirror thing going on behind the bed and they're actually filming them, you know, making love. 
And I, that was so creepy. That's, but then I guess, I mean, that's what an evil organisation would do. So. I mean, it's quite racy for 1963, I thought, as well. Yeah. And this is before the, conf- the Confessions films. Remember the old Confessions films? Confessions of a Milkman and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. This is about <laughs> 10 years before those. So it's pretty racy. Yeah. Those films, I've never seen any of them, but there was always one particular actor in all of them, right? Yeah. Because it, someone retweeted something from him on Twitter and then and that's another rabbit hole. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so that, that was kind of creeped out. How did, did um, all these kind of little sort of uh, risque bits... Um, Robin Asquith, Alex, mate. did you... Robin, Robin Asquith. That's the, the guy. Going. That's the guy. Robin yeah, Asquith, yeah. that's yeah, it. Yeah. Um, did any of you watch this with your better hearts? Yes. No. Okay. And how did you did? No, I didn't. Alex, you didn't watch with Amy. No. John, how did Becca react to to these kind of scenes? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, the the whole film is, and I'm going to use quotation marks here, is not as as an excuse for saying it, but of its time. Mm. Um, you, you know, the the values how how women were um, viewed in the '60s are pretty evident in this film. Um, from the belly dancing intro graphics with the belly dancer at the, at the um, gypsy camp and the various ladies being sort of handed to Bond on a silver plate to the slapping of bottoms and the slapping of faces. So uh, there's a lot of, uh, from my other half, uh, so on, um, you know, with, with kind of the instant, instantly Bond jumping into bed scene. However, that is setting a standard for the Bond films that became synonymous with Bond for so many years. Mm. So I, I don't bemoan it. I think it's it's just a the Bond pastiche, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, but yeah. I, yeah. Sorry. For I was going to say no. I mean, I didn't see it with my wife, but she had already seen it, and she doesn't mind the fact that that is what James Bond. He goes, well, that is James Bond. He is a he is yeah. a ladies' man, and he basically um, you know can get the women to do whatever they you know whatever he wants them to do because it's James Bond and it's accepted. And yeah. that's that's all there is to it. So it wouldn't have bothered her. So um, anyway, so after they're, they're, they're unwittingly filmed, um, <laughs> Tatiana, they then have to make a plan to steal the lecture from the Russian embassy consulate, whatever the damn thing is. And um, this was a, this another bit where we sort of laughed out loud. Now, oh, my favourite scenes, this. Carolina and I are sort of refurbishing our house at the moment. So we're dealing with blueprints and plans every single freaking day. And um, Bond sort of has the, the medallion that he gets from the cathedral where, you know, that other agent is, is killed because Tatiana's sort of brought it. Now, the first question I have is, why did she not just give it to him? You know, why all the cloak and dagger stuff? Because they just slept together. Or did I miss something? I, I I didn't really understand who the dude with the moustache and the beret was. What was he all about? Um, was following them around, you know, on the sort of the skirt, the, the kind of the, the the fringes of their vision. There's this guy in a beret and a moustache. Yeah, was, and then who, Grant who, actually who, ends who, up killing yeah. him. Wasn't he yeah. one of the Bulgarians yeah. that the, they used? Yeah, right. was he? He, he, was. Wasn't, he, he wasn't the son of uh, Karim, was he? Another one of his sons? No, 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 no. That was someone else. No, he was one of the Bulgarian assassins. Alex is right. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. And then Grant's killed him to stop him from killing Bond. Right. Because because Grant, I, I remember now, so Grant basically has to keep Bond alive until Grant can steal the lector himself. Yeah. So they're basically using Bond to get this machine typewriter thing. And then, yeah, when he becomes useless, then they'll get rid of him. Um, but, yeah, so she's obviously got the 
blueprints for the consulate in a, in a little medallion, which she's left for Bond in a cathedral, despite the fact that they're now sleeping together, and she's totally in love with him. Um, and so Bond takes this to Karim, and they're starting to plan how they're going to get into the consulate. And he opens the medallion and takes out a little piece of paper and opens, opens it up. <laughs> it's a flipping handkerchief, isn't it? They've, they've drawn it during a meal at a restaurant, haven't they? It basically? looks like it's been dri- dri- drawn by a five-year-old. <laughs> like, I was expecting... She's like, I've got the blueprints. And then he opens it up, and it's literally just like, you know, like five squares. There's a toilet. There's, a, there's my bedroom. There's Johnny's bedroom. There's There's... Daddy's study and all the rest of it. I just found it absolutely hilarious. So yeah, but then all of this basically leads to the my favorite, and I guess it's the most the thing that this film is most famous for, which is the entire sequence and set piece on the Orient Express. Which well, I we've, we've missed was... we've missed something out though. Um, Bobby, oh, cause, go John. Cause there's there's a, there's a scene on the um, boat where he gets um, Tanya. To basically recount the the plot and the and the plans. Yes, that's right. So recorded. they know what's going on. Yeah, but it's recorded. But he's got this. He's got this. Um, oh yeah. Uh, Peephole camera. You know, the, the 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 top down camera, and it really struck me again. A little nostalgia here. As he opened it up, and you can see him recording. And inside was an ever ready battery. Yes. And that really struck. Because <laughs> ever ever ready again. You know. Do you see there's any more? No. Nope. Little little details from time that I loved in this film, um, yeah. but it was hilarious because. It was very well filmed because you could see her, recount, you know, telling the plan of stealing the device. But at the same time, they cut that with Bond, who'd sent by then sent the tape back to M, and M was listening to it with Money Penny and all the all the um, kind of members of of M Division around the table. <laughs> and Bond starts saying, "And do you remember Bond when we were getting all the shenanigans?" And and M goes, "Oh no, 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 turn it off, quick, quick, turn it off." And then the Money Penny goes next door into her office and turns her into Cobbons and carries <laughs> on listening. And then M says, "I know you're listening, Money Penny." The whole thing was just so charming. It was so oh, I loved hilarious, it. though. Yeah, but in a very charming way. You're absolutely yeah. right. And also the fact that I mean, for M to really switch all that off and shut it down. I mean, yeah. they cut away, but you could imagine that that tape, that old-fashioned tape, was just all over the place. Someone so would I, have had to sell a tape it. And I'm imagining a, a prime television series of the adventures of Bond and M when they were young, getting up to shenanigans as a spin-off. <laughs> that's, that's the, you know, we talked about on PPT, we talked yeah. about possible Bond spin-offs. This is it. It's yeah, M and his shenanigans. <laughs> shenanigans. No, hang on. I need to come up with a title for it. I'm going to pitch it to Eon and see if they go for it. But yeah, that, that's our spin-off. Yeah. I want to know what he got up to. Oh, well. But that takes us onto the train, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I, who, who basically saw that and thought to themselves, I need to book a trip for me and the missus and go and do that one day? I want to do a sleeper. I, 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 I'd like to do that. Only if, only if she's not got the same shocking nightwear that Tanya has to wear. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. look at the black passports. Awful. Those were the days, Hey, eh? Those were the days. <laughs> yep. <laughs> sorry, a bit of but the Orient Ex- <laughs> Don't get the Orient Express, Alex. Call, sorry, yeah. the Orient Express is. It just seems like such a cool thing to do. So I'd I'd love to do it, but I would do it full. Like I wouldn't be packing leisure, active leisure wear or whatever. I would be packing my three piece best. I yeah, definitely dressed in nice so for that. There's there's one phrase from the film that when I heard it, it, rem- it basically reminded me str- straight away of you, Bobby, and that is, 
when uh, the guard and Bond discover the bodies of Kareem and the uh, other guy that they'd captured. Mm-hmm. And he looks around at the body and says, mm, not mad about his tailor, are you? Um, and that made me think of yeah. you straight away. Speaking of the tailoring, actually, nice little segue there because we haven't talked about that. Um, but I absolutely loved, I mean, Connery was in a suit for all of this film. I can't remember, apart from when we first see him at the beginning when he's, you know, um, being amorous. Uh, and he's in his swimming trunks, but after that, he's in a he's in a suit, shirt, and tie for the entire movie. It's a kind of a grey, a brushed, almost like a flock material suit, with very dark sunglasses that have quite high rims to them, which were quite stylish mm. at the time. And then off yeah. and on, he had his trilby on, didn't he? But um, I don't think he changed his suit very much. It was the same suit throughout the film. So there were actually eight, but you wouldn't oh, wow. have noticed them. They were. Apparently, they were um, specially tailored Savile Row suits, each one costing two grand. In the 60s? Yeah. Whoa. It's like wearing an Aston, Ma- an Aston Martin, that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But wow. I think there's so much of this Whoa. film like, that really... Like, there was stuff in the in the first film, but there's so much in this one that is synonymous with Bond. That the first time, or if it wasn't the first time, it's just something was done. It was just perfected in this in this uh, movie i don't know it just it there's so much from here that you just go yeah that's definitely that's bond and you'll you'll remember yeah. it i think he rocked that trilby really well as well yeah. he just that's the sean connery we know you know when you think of sean connery as bond you it's not him in the gun barrel sequence is it sorry to skip back right to the beginning of the movie no, it's not. it looked more like it it's looked more him. like george lazenby didn't it yeah, did yeah i'm gonna have to look that up now um, I, I meant to yesterday, and then I've just got too many mental notes. You know, I'm a bit nuts. So, so yeah. So they're on the train, and then there's this cat and mouse game with with Grant, who's lurking around as well. Um, and then I, I, it was quite sad when Karim got killed. Um, yeah. Kind of re- reminiscent of when uh, what's his face Felix. in uh, who Felix when Felix gets no, killed. No, not Felix. Um, Mathers. Mathers in uh, Quantum of Solace when he when he gets killed. He, why has everyone gone blank? Because Quantum of Solace well, wasn't that good a film. Question question of sport. Question of sport was not my favourite one of of all of them, really. To be honest. Mathers, Mathers, <laughs> Casino Royale. You know, yeah, yeah. the one who compliments Eva Green on her beautiful dress and so on. He, yeah. He's the one that helps Daniel Craig, and then he gets killed in Quantum of Solace, and it's really sad. And then Daniel Craig dumps him in a dumpster and takes all his money and stuff. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but I thought Connery played it quite well because they obviously had quite a good relationship going between them. But then there is a slight detachment because he's still got a job to do and he's got to protect the girl as well. Mm. And he's still got to get the lecture to where it needs to be. But there's just a, just a brief second just before they shut the door on the carriage where Karim's body's left and you just see it on Connery's face there's just this look of um it's really hard to describe but it just it's just for a microsecond it puts some humanity into him Mm -hmm. and I, I think Connery doesn't get enough credit for the subtlety that he put into that role from what I've kind of 
you know, critics of him that I've, you know, kind of read their reviews of his performance over the years as Bond. I felt I felt he was a bit harsh to um, Kareem's son when he told him he was dead, though. It didn't. It didn't. He he didn't come across as very sympathetic at the time. He felt, oh, yeah. matter of fact. But um, everything I've just complimented for, he put in the bin in the next scene. Yeah, because it was literally, <laughs> uh, your father's dead. Yeah. Now make he, sure that when we get to you know Belgrave yeah. or somewhere, you get me an agent and blah blah blah. Yeah, here's, here's um, a cigarette. Oh, a cigarette holder. Off you go. It's quite poetic, though. The thing is, um, Ped, uh, the the actor who's he had he was terminally ill and had cancer, and he died a month after all his his film uh, no. scenes were completed. He shot himself. Pedro Armandariz. Yeah. Oh, you're you're oh, much better at saying it than I am. Um, so that's yeah. sexy voice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank, thank you, Philip. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there's like this this tragic real depth to it <laughs> um, that yeah, that you don't know that. about until you look it up. But it does act as a catalyst for Grant to finally speak and say something in the film mm. um, because he's listening when Bond gives. Uh, one of Karim's sons, the instructions to have an agent meet them at the next bit. And so Grant basically poses as this agent. And so he's obviously putting on this British accent. Um, and then uh, we end up with a, a dinner scene. And this Carolina actually picked up on it when they were ordering the wine. And uh, he he went for a red Chianti. And with fish? <laughs> with fish, exactly. That was it. I... I mean, obviously, I knew that. I mean, this is a moot point because we all know at this point that he's a bad guy. Sorry, can we just go? But but we're sort of. Can we just go back slightly for a second? Yeah, yeah, go. How did the Robert Shaw character Grant establish trust with Bond? Because I missed that when I watched it. I've seen it twice. How did he manage to establish such trust as a secret agent who's supposed to be on guard constantly? And yet this guy gave one story and he took it and was sitting and having dinner with him and everything. What was it that... So I think... It, it, oh, go on. You, you, you do it, John. No, no, you go, Alex. Go on. Go so on. It, go on, he had the cigarette case and they talk about the cigarette. Uh, yeah, would you like a light? And then he's like, no, I've got a lighter, thanks. And they're, 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 so that there's a script. And, and basically he came along and intercept, intercepted the other agent and killed him. Did he kill him in the toilet Yeah, or that's right. They went to the toilet and killed yeah. him. Um, but it was that simple, and you just think to yourself, like they've got to think of some better lines. They've got to think of better things than that. That's the low flying swan flies east <laughs> at midnight whilst the clock is ticking. Was, some sort of key phrase they just say or something. It was <laughs> so. So it's purely because he said the line. Um, do, do you have a light? Do, do you know? Do you have a light? Well, I've got. A, I've, I've got a match. Well, I've got a lighter. It works better. It sometimes it's. Works. Is that yeah. is, that, going is that the code phrase you think, Phil? Do you I think, think that was the, was code, the phrase? code phrase. Yeah. So I mean, that, that I was the only. Right. So that was the only. That was the only thing that established the trust that made him think, okay, that's someone I should be trusting. This that's is an exactly agent. It. Yeah. yeah. It was that okay. Simple. You have a match. That was it. No, I have a lighter. But in but in those days, that was all that was enough because it was, it was a classic sort of spy phrase thing. That, that okay, that's fine. That's yeah. that, that'll do. Yeah. No, yeah. fair enough. Okay. That, that's. Yeah. <laughs> It was not. It wasn't that. I don't think it was that complicated back in those days. There were simpler times, Philip. Yeah. There were simpler times. <laughs> yeah, but then it obviously, eventually leads to the big showdown between Bond and Grant, and finally we get to see the case, the talcum powder in action, 
that's where I got excited because in actual fact, going back to, you know, the case and, you know, there's not as much fuss from Q branch as there is in later years. Um, I kind of forgot about the case after that. It, you know, it, you, I don't know if it was the same for everybody else, but I wasn't sitting through the whole film thinking, when's he going to use it? You know, it's like in Goldeneye, the exploding pen. I was like, when, when is he going to use that damn thing? Um, or, the, you know, the watches, the laser watch, again, in Goldeneye. Um, so, so, yeah, so when the case came out, he was like, oh, you know, I've got, I'll give you a bunch of sovereigns or whatever to sort of, you know, stall things a bit. Um, and then, uh, and he's got two different cases because one case got the sovereigns, right? And the other case has got the... The lector. lector, yeah. Yeah, because... No, it's no, no, like... the other case has got the talcum powder in it because he, he says to him... So Bond says, they're in my case. And so Grant gives him the case and says, you open it. Because he's obviously aware that there's some funny traps possibly going on. So Bond opens it and then it's like, okay, fine. And then, uh, and then he says, oh, there's something else in my other case. And then he gets the other case and then Grant opens that, but he opens it normal way and then it all explodes in his face. So the other case is brought on the train by... Uh by the spy uh, by um uh grant so that's what throws right. you is and he basically pinched it from the other agent so the other agent had a case of it so so there was, was it like a dead drop with this something cases? like that yeah so it looked yeah. it, that's why it looked the same and worked the same and so that's why he he turned the things to to just go oh yeah i recognize this type of case and then he just checks to make sure it's legit um but yeah no so i think the thing is i was expecting as soon as they said he he said, um, you look very fit or something like that. It was obvious that he'd already sized up him and they sized up the other one. And I was like, good, okay, let's let's enjoy this. This was gonna be fun. And then of course they they, they have a, a little break where they go to the, the dining car and have dinner first, which is a remarkably civilized. So I th- I think the fr- I think the, the, the continual use by Grant of old man, yeah. I think that was also a clue, I think. Yes. Um, because because Bond is is he Commander Bond in this film? He must be, mustn't he? As his, his position. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been in the service for ten eleven yeah, years. Yeah, so he's he's case. Commander Bond, and and um, sure, whoever he, whichever spy he was trying to re- replace, would have been um, a lower rank than Bond. So he would have called him Sir, not Old Man. Mm. And I think that was a giveaway as well. That and his physique and the red wine. I think there's all, all clues as mm. to sort of the identity given away. Yeah. He didn't when he refeed uh, Tatiana's drink. He didn't do it very subtly for me. I was just like, he's just put rehypnol in her <laughs> wine. <laughs> I think we. Like, I mean, the way he does it, it's like he takes right a bottle. And he's, he's like literally doing this with his hands, like like you know, <laughs> squidging it in there. <laughs> I, I think know. for the time it was subtle enough, and the sense that. You know, it was like, oh, how clumsy of me, you know, just spilling it. Let me pour you another one. And it was just a slight, a slight, slight, slight of hand. But I suppose, you know, the yeah. cameras needed to be able to see that he'd done it. Um, mm. Otherwise, it would have just been like, well, how, why has she all just gone all floppy all of a sudden? Yeah, but I, I mean, again, I thought, I would have thought that Bond, being super secret agent and meant to be hyper vigilant, would have kind of noticed that. Because it's, you know, it's the oldest trick but in the wasn't, place, isn't it? But wasn't so he, he supposed to have drunk it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't for no, him. That was. T- it was for her. It was for Tatiana. It was but, for Tatiana. Okay. Yeah, but the thing is, bear in mind that, that as soon as as soon as he um, 
closes the door and, and Tatiana's asleep. He literally said, what was it you put in there? So he, he'd, he'd, ha- he'd already worked out he what, had, what happened and gone, yeah, no, I get, I get this. Um, none of that was subtle. And, and I just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's I think actually, yeah, Bond did notice, but then by this stage, Bond thinks that Tatiana's working for Spectre. Which obviously she isn't. She's yeah. just a pawn in their bigger nefarious game or yeah. plan or whatever. Mm. So at this stage, he doesn't know that you know she's actually kind of on his side. Definitely can, more than that, mm. Grant guy. Can I just fact check something here? Because um, we, we were, I'm going back to those gold sovereigns because again they were used in this sequence with Grant. And yeah, yeah. At, at, um, actually, at the time, um, a gold sovereign had a face value of one pound. A face value, but its gold content was worth uh, more than that. So the gold con- content of fifty gold sovereigns would have been worth about four hundred and fifteen pounds. Oh wow! Mm. Uh, in if you scale that up to twenty sixteen or twenty twenty ish, that much gold would be somewhere between fifteen and twenty grand. So so plenty of, plenty of money for the mission basically. So um, when he offers Grant the coins, I think that's quite a good sweetener, isn't it? Really, mm. and also yeah. being it's gold. You know, you can take yeah. it from country to country, and it's going to be worth yeah, more in different countries as well. Yeah. That's going to be another factor. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, so as you say, it's kind of a agnostic currency, isn't it? You yeah. can use it anywhere. Yeah. Which is it, it, this reminded me completely of John Wick when I, when I thought when I saw oh, it. Oh yeah. Really, which is really interesting. Yeah. And yeah, and, I, and ironically, yeah, going back to those sovereigns, going, you know, in terms of what, how much it costs for cigarettes now, I think you'd need fifty gold sovereigns for one pack of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> But they smoke continually throughout this film, don't they? I mean, every scene, someone's smoking. So I can see what you mean. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of... But, I mean, the smoking was a thing then, wasn't it? It reminds me of... Yeah. I mean, for all mankind, uh, just to skip to a completely different genre, TV show, whatever, but they're smoking constantly in that, but it was just a, you know, it was a normal thing, norm, wasn't yeah. it? And they're in, smoking in indoors as well. They're smoking at dinner. Mm. They're smoking wow, in the hotel rooms. They're smoking in the, you know, with the gypsies. It's just, you're, it's acceptable and fair play to it. We want to see more and more of it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, those were the days. Um, so, so, yeah, so then there's a big fight between the two of them. They used two stunt doubles for this. And apparently it took ages to actually get the takes because Sean Connery was very mischievous and uh, Tatiana or the actress that played Tatiana, she was meant to be lying there sort of, you know, drugged and unconscious and Connery every so often when, when the fight sort of moved around to where she was lying, he would then reach out and just give her a little tickle and make her laugh. And then uh, they'd have to go and set the scene up again. Well, apparently the fight scene took, it only lasts a few minutes in the film, doesn't it? But it took about mm. um, three weeks to film and, Actually, you mentioned the stunt doubles, but most of it was done by the actors, apparently. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So there were two stunt doubles. Yeah. They might have been used sparingly. Yeah. But, but they were there. So, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just going back to how Robert Shaw is an, as an actor. They probably antagonised each other so much, they probably were fighting for real. Yeah. You know? Well, he, he's, he's famous, isn't he, for, for, for annoying people on set. Yeah. But, but getting... A really good performance out of people, yeah. Um, which was a similar for Jaws, apparently as well. Yeah, Roy uh, Schneider hated him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that kind of um, aloof, I'm better than you, holier than thou sort of persona 
kind of that was his his actual his actual demeanor in real life so yeah, yeah. speaking I, of old man um again just to kind of come out of the movie for a second so Sean Connery was 32 the doctor knows so 33 for this but he looks so much older apparently he was wearing a toupee as well he was yeah like, he was he started losing his hair in his early 20s which i totally identify with and uh, yeah he just i mean I, I kind of remember a little bit of diamonds of forever and him just looking like he's in his 50s but diamonds are forever he must have been in his early to mid 40s yeah but yeah he just didn't age very well i mean still i think very handsome guy but um but yeah just looked a lot older than he actually was I just wanted to mention that. Well, I mean, his 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 the his, his love interest Daniela Bianchi, who who played Tanya, she was only twenty one, um, and so I think is still the youngest Bond girl. Mm. Um, I don't know um, what was the name of that Bond girl whose um, surname was Christmas in one of the Dalton was it the Dalton films or Brosnan films. No, Doctor Christmas. That was in the world is not enough. Yeah, that was uh, Denise uh, Denise, Denise Richardson. Denise yeah, Richardson. yeah. She one was that was young. with Charlie Sheen. Yeah, wasn't she quite? She was. She seemed quite young. So I wonder if she no, was... she's older. Uh, okay. She's one of those actresses like um, uh, Heather Graham. Yeah, it's a comedy actress, but clever, clever comedy. Yeah, no, I mean, as in, as in, she looks a lot younger than she actually yeah. is. Because like Heather Graham, even to this day, I mean, Heather Graham's in her fifties and still looks like she's twenty something. This comes, but once a year. Yeah. Well, I've always wanted to spend. Turkey in Christmas, I think he says. <laughs> at the true. end, at the end, he said, because I was sat next to my dad in the cinema. It was the first time I'd been to the cinema to see a Bond film with my dad. World is not enough. And the other reason why we were there to see that one is because it was the film where all the effects were done on rigs that I'd built and sold to Eon Productions. And uh, so obviously there was the pride factor there yeah. uh, from me, not my dad. He didn't care. Um, and uh, yeah, that bit was sort of just one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, I'm sat next to my dad. I've had a, a whole childhood of being sat in front of movies and when there's like a, even a kissing scene, like being told to cover my eyes and sometimes even cover my ears as well. Oh dear. And I'm very learned at covering my eyes and my ears at the same time until my parents gave me a signal to uncover them and then I could start I could look again. Although my mum... She, because she was really into horror movies, so I'm going off on one again now, but <laughs> whatever. Um, I watched Poltergeist when I was about five years old. Yeesh. Yeah, didn't shield me from that. Like, all the violent bits, like the guy when the maggots come out of his face in the mirror, when he washes his face and everything, didn't shield me from that at all. Two people kissing? No. Cover your eyes, cover your ears. We'll tell you when you can start watching again. The hell was all that about? Twas ever such, though. I mean, you, 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 in all walks of life, the, the the senses and the and the merry white houses and all the, you know, the Daily Mail readers—they'll always get worried about sex scenes, but they're fine with um, shooty shooty games and you know films that are violent. It's always the way. There is yeah. there is the a lot of examples of double standards at the moment. Yeah, right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, eventually, so so Bond obviously kills Grant, and they get to where they were going, and they get off the train. And uh, and then we get another big action set set piece, which was I thought was really cool, um, and that involved the helicopter where the Spectre agents come to try and do away with Bond. This is a or direct rip off of North by Northwest again, though, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It reminded me of the scene where where Cary Grant's being like bedeviled by the the plane flying over him. 
Yeah. Did you they, notice the hilarious crash as well? It was a model. It was a no, toy no, plane but, about yay big. No, no, no. But when it when when the helicopter um, fell out of the sky and crashed, it then cut to a quite a nicely parked helicopter with no bits bouncing around or anything, just on flames. <laughs> I thought that made, <laughs> just made me. I just laughed. I, I laughed exactly like that, Phil, when I saw it. Maybe made me laugh. Go watch it again, and you'll see what I mean. Oh maybe, man! You see, you're supposed so you see funny. you're supposed to suspend your disbelief. You know, I know, it's, it's 1963, <laughs> but even so, it was just so funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where he eventually loses the trilby, because they're trying to drop a grenade on top of him, yeah. so he manages to get into it and then get his Beretta, uh, not Beretta, PPK with the sniper attachment out again to actually shoot the guy who drops a grenade in his lap, and then you hear the other one go... Quick, get it, and then and then it blows up in their faces. It's hilarious. Um, it's a pretty. This also is. A, it is a pretty sad indictment of the training of Spectre because you see at the very beginning the the levels of training that they go into, but then they couldn't get a couple of people to, to you know ride a helicopter properly and drop grenades on a car that was moving, you know. Not very well manoeuvred as well, by the way. Phil, they, they were too busy. They were too busy flame throwing their friends running past them yeah. in, the, in the training room. Training. Yeah, I suppose. Um, the the, the <laughs> rifle is actually an armor like AR seven survival rifle. It's not. It's not a Beretta, by the way. Oh great! It's Thanks. a twenty two um, to... cartridge. Yeah. I'll add that to the Bond shopping list that we yeah. started in the No yeah. Time to Die review. Yeah. <laughs> Next time I go, I, I really think in America. I, I really think that 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 scene where um, uh, Claire is taking uh, Grant through is it? She's right in the beginning of the film, and they walk through that whole sequence with all the you know mm. that the people being stabbing the dummies. And so I, I'm pretty sure that that then gave them the idea to do the same thing with the Q department where they're running. Mm. It, it, it makes more <laughs> sense when Bond walks through the department; they're doing similar things. So I think that's that was maybe maybe the early stages when they're iterating the stories. They thought, ah, let's just move that over to to MI five instead. <laughs> yeah. uh, so then we then we then we've got that scene with the boats, haven't we? Yeah, which I we thought did. was really that's good. Right. I thought it was really clever. Mm. It was actually really well filmed as well yeah. because you know normally when they're doing the car chases and it looks like he's in front of a screen. And they do that sort of turning the wheel, sort of like this. Yeah. That actually looked like they were in the water. They, they used very, very little green screen. A lot of this was filmed all on on location, and they used very, very few green screens, if any. It looked dangerous um, more than anything yeah. else. It looked dangerous. It looked like someone could have got seriously hurt as well. Well, at one point, one of the um, the helicopter got too close to uh, Sean Connery uh, and almost endangered him, and there was a little bit of. Um, concerned about that because it was getting very very close to him but i mean on the water because you couldn't manipulate the the scene to actually make it look like there was you know pretending that there was fire in front of them they had to shoot it for real and it looked like some people actually could have got seriously hurt by the flames there were dudes jump there was dudes jumping off on flames off the boats weren't there yeah it's brilliant crazy it goes to show, and obviously our praise of this scene as well but they very carefully storyboarded that entire sequence which wasn't something that they really did back in those days um but if i can hold this up because i've got the james bond archives here oh my god so this this scene was filmed in scotland not in not in um, greece it was Um, it was yeah yeah that's right and then close-ups were done at pinewood Mm. but that's the original storyboard We'll have to look at it another time when you've not got blur turned on, Bobby, because it just looks like after about three or four hours of drinking. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, I will take a picture yeah. and I will put it on the Instagram page, which, by the way, if you're listening and you're on Instagram, we have a new Instagram page for Tailoring Talk called at Tailoring Talk Podcast. Go and give us a follow. I can't follow back yet because Instagram is limiting the things that I can do for some weird reason. But um, but yeah, at Tailoring Talk Podcast, thank you. And I will post uh, I will post that storyboard up on there and promptly get sued by... Um, the broccoli family. Just going back to um, sorry, just going back to the actual scene of them in the boat with that level of danger, and this is part of the reason why I wanted to go back and watch these films, and why I really enjoy the films from sixties and seventies, because you can't put CGI on those scenes in the sixties, and this is part of the reason why French Connection is one of my favourite films of all time, because you couldn't manipulate that car chase scene. It's the best car chase scene of all time. And they did it for real. And this is another example of them doing it for real. And I like harking back to that sort of period. And this is another example of why I really enjoyed um, these earlier um, James Bond films, because you actually see it as it's supposed to be and what, and what they did. It's what they're actually just shooting. It's brilliant. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining that they did use um, some very clever parallax effects with the cameras in terms of some of the, the layers of flame you see in front of the boats, and perhaps yeah. they were further away. But even so, I mean, I, I had the same thoughts as you, Phil, uh, with the gypsy scene where all the, with all the wagons on fire. Yeah. I'm just thinking that that must have been, there, there must have been some, some problems there. Like, yeah. It, it looked pretty, pretty hairy, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, it did, it did the job. I mean, I, I really thought, uh, once Bond had lit the, um, the water up with the the oil cans. I thought perhaps they they'd got away with it. and It happened in front of them, but then you see them all like screaming and jumping off with the, with the backs burning for the boats. It's a cracking scene. Yeah. Really good. There's uh, I won't I won't go into it now, but the story behind that scene is absolutely fascinating, and the amount of pressure they were under, um, and the amount of the amount of explosives that they used, and the amount of gas that they. That they uh, well to yeah. make the water burn, they must have gone gone for it, mustn't they? Really, eight hundred. Uh, let's have a look. Eight hundred charges, and um, lots and lots of gallons of gas. I can't see the exact number, hmm. but a lot. Um, and then they had to do it again, like literally twenty four hours before a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe a story for another day. Um, so they managed to escape these rubbish Spectre agents, and then there are consequences of that because then we go back to Spectre HQ, and this is where we get the number two, number three, because Cleb and the other dude, number five, not uh, Kronstein, Kronstein, um, as, as sort of in front of who we think is Blofeld and his little white cat, um, and uh, and one of them's going to die. So Cleb gets her little you know, toe knife poison dart thing out and um red and no, has, who is it that has it? It's the other guy that comes in, it's right? The other number guy that comes four, number two. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, that's right. Anyway, whatever. So we think that Cleb's gonna get it, but Kronstein actually gets it. And then Cleb says that she will make sure that she goes and gets the job done. But I think the right person died. I think the the head of Spectre uh, did the right thing because he said right from the very start and he was quite arrogant about it. I'm a chess chess. I'm a chess grandmaster. I've just won this massive tournament in Venice, and you've called me over here. I've left nothing to chance. But he didn't quite figure. He didn't have everything completely to uh, foolproof. 
So the right person ki- was uh, was killed. No question. Oh wow! <laughs> Do you want to change the Bond villain that you want to be from Odd Job to Blofeld? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay, fine. <laughs> I want to decapitate someone with a hat. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to the hotel where Tatiana and, and Bond are getting ready to sort of go and they've got the lector machine. Um, and now the, my favourite thing about this whole scene was that suit because it was a charcoal chalk stripe flannel. It just looked absolutely amazing. White shirt. He was wearing a navy blue knit tie. Well, it wasn't a knit tie. It was a silk tie, but it had a sort of little small geo square pattern on it. He just looks so cool. I just, I wrote that down on my list of seats that Bobby has to make himself in the next 12 months. Bobby's swooning a bit here, guys. He's getting (laughs) getting a little bit uh, romanced up, actually. So good. He looks so good. Like, really. I can't remember what happened in that scene. Cleb in the room with with her shoes. Oh yeah, yeah. She was the maid, wasn't she? I think Alex should take it from here because he's been really quiet on his phone for the last twenty minutes. He's watching. He's been watching the following you on Instagram. He's been following you on Instagram. I was following you on Instagram. In the background. Oh, whatever. Oh, thank you. Well, no. This was. So this is the the finale, isn't it? This is this is where Cleb's like, "Don't worry, I'll deal with it," and then goes into the room, um, and then the this is this is the point where. Tatiana obviously recognizes her and then they walk, they're just about to walk away. Um, uh, they're just about to walk, to walk away with the lector. And so it's, it's that critical moment of, you know, is she going to, um, is she going to sort of turn, uh, and, and, and go, um, across to the other side or not? And of course she, she does. So therefore she, um, knocks the gun out of her, um, knocks the gun out of her um hand uh and then you have the 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 spring loaded knife uh it's the most bizarre fight scene uh that I've seen um and obviously bond is perfectly ready for this going oh I've seen these before and gets his gets his chair out to hold her um and then eventually um uh, Tatiana shoots her which is pretty dark really um, and it's quite a good fight scene, but that's that's basically the end of it. Um, it was it was going to be darker than that. So the original the original script basically had um, Tatiana sacrificing herself to save. Oh wow! Okay. Ooh. Oh wow! Uh, and then they changed it to um, like Bond would have got the better of uh, what's her face, mm-hmm. yeah. but then he would have got grazed by her poison knife. Oh, I see. And the film would have ended with us not him hospitalised and us not knowing whether he was going to survive to make it to Thunderball or not. Uh, ironically, quite similar to the end of No Time to Die in some respect. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but but the the reason why they changed it to Tatiana shooting her is because they were sort of you know Cubby and John Steers and some of the other guys were sort of standing there watching the film, watching the scene play out and be filmed and refilmed, and they just couldn't get it to work. It, it just was sort of jarring. And and also the the physical movement of Cleb actually being able to nick Bond and you know all of that kind of stuff, it it just wasn't quite gelling. Um, and then I think it's a guy called John Steers who was on the set. He basically saw that the gun was lying there next to Tatiana, who's on the floor, and and he just said, "For God's sake, like why don't you, we we don't have time for this?" Because they were really up against it on the production schedule as well. Um, 
we don't have time for this. Just get the girl to put the gun up and shoot her, for God's sake. And that's what they did. And it it didn't need to be any longer than that because we've already had several fights. Um, so we, we kind of, we knew that the end was, was nigh, so it was all right. It just made me yeah. want to go to Venice we- now. <laughs> have you ever Although, been, Alex? I've been once, yeah, but not, I mean, not in the place they've got, uh, that they had in the hotel room, just had an amazing view. And then obviously you see them on the water, which I've not done. Yeah. Um, so. I, I honeymooned in Venice uh, and I did the, the whole gondola thing. And at one point I did actually sing just one cornetto, much <laughs> to the consternation of the uh, gondolier. <laughs> and interestingly, all the, all the British tourists clapped and recognised it. And everyone else thought, what is he singing? Because no one else had seen those adverts. Um, <laughs> at one point you go past Mozart's house on, 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 the, on a gondolier. It's brilliant. So it was lovely seeing it. It's an amazing place. <laughs> it is exactly as you see it in the films. There's, there's nothing that's there's no let down there mm. at all. So do yeah. do go. It's a brilliant place. And that's where the film ends. You know, Bond yeah. and uh, Tatiana have got the lector. They've got their sex tape as well. So they they did better than Tommy and Pam did. Uh, <laughs> Very stop good. That thing. I do find it funny though. Cool. Disney Plus. Oh, it's on Disney, isn't it? Yeah. They, he throw he threw, but he, he throws the he, he throws, throws the it sex away tape into the water. But but yeah. I mean, part of me thinks like. They really did. Some they... spectre pervert was under the waves, basically, and caught it. And was, you know, gone home to, oh, yeah. Got a bod sex tape here. Lovely. That's my evening sorted. Is that your perv voice there, Bobby? You were just doing that. <laughs> wasn't it? That's your perv voice. Oh, look. <laughs> oh, look. I've got, I've got bod sex tape. Oh. That's my evening sorted. <laughs> So all, all of a sudden we're watching Euro Trash, aren't we? No. <laughs> <laughs> who'd have thought it? We'd, who'd have thought we'd have uh, have a, a Bond perv? Yeah. In, 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 in. This, is, this is going places. It really is. <laughs> but it does. But it does oh cut God. to the first film that has a proper Bond soundtrack song. Matt Monroe, that beautiful voice. Yeah. From Russia, from Russia with love. Oh, wow. It was great. Mm. It was a really good song. It was a great way to finish it as well. Mm. Yeah, because they got together with uh, a guy who just, uh, the guy who wrote the song had just written Oliver on the West End and or, or for the stage and had a massive hit with it on Broadway, whatever. And so they put, they got him to write the song and then John Barry to do the arrangement, composition and so on. And uh, yeah, came off really well. I thought they still by this stage, we'd, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but I remember talking about this with Carolina. She, the one jarring thing she found with the film, they still hadn't quite placed the James Bond theme properly or, you know, what I think is the proper place for it, which is, action sequences, him mm. doing something really cool, whatever. It, it was just so overused. It was getting a bit grating, sort of by halfway through the film. I know Phil's got an opinion. Are you, are you, are you referring to the actual John Barry, the, the actual sort of the, uh, guitar? Because it's, I mean, it was still, it was still, re- I mean, it was still relatively new, wasn't it? I mean, it was, there was only Doctor No in this. So there's the only two films it was in. So he probably wanted to make use of it. It was probably still exciting for audiences i mean they didn't have video so it wasn't like people could watch it over and over again so by the time the second film came out it still would have been relatively fresh for the audience i would have thought i think it was okay to actually have it as often as they did 
Again, that's just me looking at it with my 19, sorry, 20, what century are we in? 21st. 21st century. 21st century, Bobby. Buck Rogers and the 25th century. That was a TV show. Mm. <laughs> um, so, no, just, what, what's going on? <laughs> I think we've broken well, Bobby. If you look at, if you look at did, you, did you ever see Buck Rogers? Yeah. God. I'm asking John Pointer yeah, yeah, yeah. because I, I know that it. he would have done. I, I, I feel like it. if John and I were at the same school, oh, I would have been yeah, like no, his no, really odd, it. really good friend. So Bucks, Bucks, her, um, female sidekick in her jumpsuit, what with her long, long sort of auburn hair. Oh, God, yeah. One, one of my first kind of sexual <laughs> fantasies, I think, in, 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 in of, of its time. I was very young, obviously. I didn't yeah. know, I, was, I didn't know what I was doing, but she was lovely. Yeah. And Twiggy, diggy diggy. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, now hold that thought. Now look at Alex. <laughs> oh, no. what? <laughs> what? I don't like this. He's, uh, his headphones. Alex's headphones are very re- reminiscent <laughs> of that robot from Buck Rogers. Um, anyway. So, uh, so yeah. Anyway, there we go. So, um, I think uh, two things to do before we wrap up. Uh, firstly, to look back at some of the uh, reception that the film got when it came out, and some of the re- the, the reviews and. Uh, see what we think of them. So uh, let's have a look at my little list here. So uh, Richard Raud from The Guardian said that from Russia with Love didn't seem quite so lively, quite so fresh, or quite so rhythmically fast moving. He was obviously comparing it to Dr. No. Mm. He went on to say that the film is highly immoral in every imaginable way. It's neither uplifting, instructive, nor life-enhancing, Neither is it great filmmaking, but it sure is fun. <laughs> Interesting. Was that film, was that review of its time as well in the 60s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that I agree with that at all. I, I, anyway, we'll talk about our, our own individual ratings afterwards. Uh, it's very so, hard, Bobby. It's very hard to, to look at this with 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 our bond tinted glasses, really, in some respects, isn't it? Because for them, it's it's a new, fresh, new film. It's one of two films. Yeah. Uh, Variety described the film as a preposterous, skillful slab of hard hitting, sexy hokum. I think this was just a review about the gypsy camp scene. <laughs> After slowish start, <laughs> it's directed by Terence Young at a zingy pace. The cast performed with an an amusing combo of tongue-in-cheek and seriousness, and the Istanbul location is an added bonus. Yes. Um, yeah. I like the fact it was in Istanbul. Uh, I, mean, mm. I mean, they went places. They went, they went to Belgrade, and they went to Zagreb, they went to Istanbul, they went to Venice. Mm. It's, it, it, you know, for, for, for a second film with a, a budget that was, that was double the first film, it was a £2 million budget, wasn't it, for this film? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they, they did a really good job of, of instigating the glamorous locations for the Bond, the Bond series. And set the standard yeah. really. So, mm. um, and again, as we said before, a lot of this, a lot of this was on location, not green screen. So they've they've really you know, brought out the big bucks for this. The Times uh, wrote that um, Bond is the secret ideal of the congenital square, conventional in every particular, except in morality, where he has the courage and the physical equipment to do without thinking what most of us feel we might be doing. I'm not sure if he's talking about killing people or sex there. <laughs> oh. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, John has a picture of Tatiana Romanova 
that he's holding up for the screen. Okay, so he's oh, that's what he's talking about. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fine. God, really, this these reviews are skirting the lines. I'm trying to to make sure that when I upload this podcast, I don't have to tick the explicit button. Well, I mean. I there was so much going on in this film. I, I don't know which version you saw because the version I watched, which I bought on iTunes, there's a scene right. Say, there's a scene right at the beginning where you see through the curtains in Bond's room. Tatiana walks off the balcony or somewhere to the bed, and she's stark naked, and it's done sensitively. Yeah. Now that was actually cut from the UK print of the film. Um, so I, oh, I, we got I, lucky. I know. I don't know. Did you see that? I don't think I saw that. I don't believe, I don't believe so. But when you say start naked, she no, wouldn't have been. What... She, when you say start naked, she wouldn't have been totally start naked. She was. Totally oh, she naked. was in the buff, mate. Yeah. In '63. I mean, again. Yeah, and, and it was because because of the because of that, and they they had issues with um, the scene with the, with the. Thank you, Bobby. <laughs> Goodness me. Again, glad it's just an audio podcast. <laughs> um, with the, the scene with them, with when Bond gets porny with Tanya and they have the, the mirror, the one we mirror, they had to cut the length of <laughs> had to cut the length of the um, the scene of the actual people watching the sex. They were more concerned than the, about the voyeurism than the actual scene itself. So, as you say, for the, you know, a, a kind of a prudish time, but it's interesting how different countries cut different things. Um, but yeah, the the the, the scene of uh, Daniela Bianchi going to the bed was cut from the UK version. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because this is something we touched on in the Dr. No episode, John. Yeah. Um, did you see the Dr. No iTunes version? Uh, I haven't I haven't watched it recently. I have seen Dr. No, but I, the last time I watched it, it was on ITV. Okay. Back did you days. watch it on iTunes? I, I, I don't know why I'm asking you. I can do it myself. I will, um, I will, I will watch it at some point, and I'll, I'll probably end up buying yeah. more at some point. Because um, Just tell me if you saw uh, Shirandris in the nud when she has to get the radiation washed over her when they get to uh, Dr. No's volcano or whatever it is, island. I'll, I'll try and think of that highly, highly specific um, aspect of the film uh, and watch it <laughs> as it comes. Yeah, well, I mean, okay. it won't be hard for you. It's Ursula Andress. I mean, yeah, it will be hard for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there, there you go. Well, there's your there's your explicit ratings. For the world. <laughs> okay, so talking of ratings, uh, we are going to give our individual ratings out of ten. I am going to start with Alex. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid six. I actually I enjoyed it. It's it's like sitting in, it's like settling into an old sofa, like an old leather sofa, which is really nice and worn and has got like a little space for you. And initially, it doesn't feel that comfortable because you're not used to it. And then it warms up, and then you're like, yeah, yeah, I can sit here for a while. I'm quite happy with that. And it it it, it kind of ticked all of the bond boxes for me. Um, and the pace didn't worry me. It wasn't, yeah. You know, it's it's not right up there for me. It's but but honestly, I think it was a it was a good showing. So I give it a six. Right, uh, Phil. I have to think back to what I um, rated Doctor No because I think if I rated Doctor No as seven, then I would have to rate From Russia with Love as a six. Now there were some very good bits about this film. There were some bits that I was left disappointed about. Excellent things about the film was the way the film took it right from the very beginning, set it in Venice and ended it in Venice. And you got a sense of number five, how 
um, skilled um, a uh, you know a strategist that he was from his uh, skills of playing chess to be able to have a foolproof plan, but turned out he didn't have it in the end. I loved uh, the, the casting of Robert Shaw. I thought he was fantastic throughout the whole film. He didn't disappoint. I don't think he ever disappoints in any films he makes. But the disappointing elements from this is um, the Bond girl herself, I'm afraid, because I felt that she had the potential to eclipse Ursula Andress because she came from a position of strength. She wasn't someone that was just a bimbo on a beach collecting shells. She was a skilled technician who worked with the, um, with the lector, who knew about the devices, was uh, highly intelligent. She was selected out of millions of girls. She was very beautiful. She had the potential to be really, really intelligent and basically say that she was going to be, you know, uh, a character that wasn't going to be overly sort of manipulated by Bond. And she just, the second she met him, she just let go and it just went against that whole side of her character. So I just felt that was a bit of a... Exactly. So I just felt that... I love you, John. I mean, James. (laughs) So that... So that was the only thing that was disappointing, but I think a lot of the things that were in it made up for that. So I would give it, it's, it's a good film. I'd say it's not as good as Dr. No. So if I said Dr. No was a seven, then this one's a six. How can you say she's not a bimbo on the beach like Ursula Andress was when in the last episode you were, you know, going on about how it was great that Ursula Andress is character was so strong yes and that and that's precisely my point is that she had she was independent there yes she was a bimbo she came across like that but she was living independently she didn't need anyone to tell her what was going on she knew her way around the island and the second bond shows up she's in trouble and she gets captured you know so that tells me that she was someone that comes from a position of strength whereas this character originally came with the position of strength and then when she saw Bond that she completely she completely melted. So that was disappointing because it went against the actual bones of her character and, and the building blocks of her character. But there was a lot of things in this film that worked very, very well for me. So it's good but not quite as good as Doctor No. Yeah. So so yeah, so by that rationale because you gave Doctor No seven? I think I gave Doctor No a seven, so this one's a six. Yeah. Okay, John. Well, I would I would give it a six, but I'm going to give bump that up to a seven just for the gypsy scene. <laughs> I've never been so entertained. <laughs> I've never been so entertained that, that I have in a Bond film. This, this kind of, it's just I, I was I was in tears. It's brilliant. So I gave uh, Doctor No an eight. So if I've got to compare the two, I preferred this film to yeah. Doctor No. It just did everything kind of bigger. It looked beautiful as well. It actually won a BAFTA for Best Cinematography. Um, so, yes, obviously it's not perfect. But again, if I do, if I use Phil's system and basically, right, this is what I gave Dr. No, and if I thought this was better, then I'll, I will... This is an 8.5. Okay. Now, the the aggregated critic score for Rotten Tomatoes for, for From Russia With Love is actually 97%. Oh, wow. Um, really? And, yeah... But you see, when the credits rolled, I didn't, I, you know, Caroline and I, we live by Rotten Tomatoes ratings whenever we watch films. <laughs> we'll always turn around to each other and we're just like, they they, they gave it what? Or, yeah, that was about right. Um, and I don't feel like that's wrong. I'm not surprised that 97% of 
critics of all time have given that film a, a positive it's review. Sean Connery's favourite Bond movie. Uh, right. And Timothy Dalton and, and Timothy Dalton. Daniel Craig. So go. it's pretty much the most yeah. favourite um, Bond film by the actors. Do you think perhaps that, that um, Doctor No was, was, was fun in its way, but, but um, from Russia Will Love, that set, set the benchmark for following films? It gave it its identity, and that's why it's such yeah. a popular film, I wonder. Well, we had a lot of we had all the first for this film, didn't we? We had the opening sequence, we had the you know the dancing credit, we had the gun barrel right at the start, we had the uh, we had the helicopter sequence because there's a helicopter sequence in every single James Bond film from here on out, uh, and we also have the the first James Bond will return at the end of the credits as well, yeah. which is in itself very exciting, I think. If you're if you're if you've seen the first two films, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you go, if you, I mean, for that time, that was kind of like how we felt when we first saw first how they were film. world world building the Marvel movies, yeah. right? So it must have been because it would everything probably would have been twenty times more fantastical back in the sixties because you know you're talking about post war, everybody's still kind of miserable, probably. Kennedy. I know, hang on, wasn't it? Was, was, was Kennedy still alive when this was, when this was released? So he was alive. His, From Russia With Love was his favourite Ian Fleming novel. It was one of his top ten favourite yeah. novels of all time. Um, and he died, I think it was shortly after seeing this, maybe? So, John F. Kennedy that. died 22nd of November 1963. Okay, so this, this film premiered, I think it was the 10th of October 1963. Okay. I thought it was April. Was it? I thought it was April. No, it was October. Maybe in the UK. I think in mm. the US. It, um... Let me check. Oh no, uh, October sixty-three in London. Uh, sixty-four. Uh, sorry, May sixty-four in the United States. Right. Ah, that's right. So he never got to see it. They so never got to see it unless he was in London at the time. <laughs> mm. Maybe. Mm. Or well, I mean. They they might have got a special print over to the White House for him. Mm. I looked that up. Actually, now I'm quite interested because they would have done things like that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. The White House would have had its own screening room and all the rest of it. I mean, this film they they wrapped on shooting and they only had about two two or three weeks, I think, of kind of post production editing and so on before it was due to be out. So, yeah. I think they did it overall. They did a really great job. So yeah, I kind of feel comfortable with an eight point five. So yeah, there we go. So next one, Thunderball. Who's in? You don't need to commit. Is it live here? Sorry, is Thunderball the next one? Yeah, Thunderball's the next I thought one. It was gold, is it not? Goldfinger? I thought it was Goldfinger. That's what they said at the end of the credits. Sorry, that's the one. Goldfinger. I knew it was. I knew it was something <laughs> to do with balls and fingers and stuff. Uh, Got it mixed uh, up. Uh, uh, Goldfinger. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Goldfinger's Sorry. next. So let's uh... Goldfinger. Who's up for that? Well, listen, let's Phil. Phil missed out. Goldfinger Thunderball on Her Majesty's Secret. So he went straight from from Russia with Love to Diamonds Are Forever. No, no, no. I've seen, no, I've seen I've seen Goldfinger. Like he... No, no, no. I've seen Goldfinger. Then after oh, Goldfinger, okay. I saw Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, and then you got confused because Sean Connery basically looks like he's about to get his bus passed. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yes, Goldfinger. Right. Uh, so Goldfinger's the next one. That's what we're going to be reviewing in March. 
Phil, you're definitely in because you're doing all the Conrays. Okay. Alex, uh, John just got two thumbs up, so that's great. I'll do my best. And then, <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I am. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining me this evening. It was such a nice surprise to have John and Alex. You, you know, I always have the best time with you. We're recording for Play Paul's Turn tomorrow night. That's Play Paul's Turn. Go wherever you get your shows. Look that podcast up if you've got any interest in pop culture, gaming, TV shows, or just four or five, depending how many of us are on at any any point in time, just lovely, lovely people just talking about things that they're passionate about and having a great time. Just come and eavesdrop. We'd love to have you with us. Um, and you get to hear the sexiest voice in podcasting history as well. Oh, for the love of God. <laughs> <laughs> I should have prepared a card for John to read. I just want to get you to read something. Do you know what? I'm going to do that next time. We could I'm going to find something for you. A little, not little passage monkey, for you to Roberto. Read. Maybe the opening, the opening chapter of Goldfinger. That's how we'll kick the next episode off. As read by John Evan. Okay. I can't even tell your voice. Um, Phil, thank you so much. And Pleasure. Read. You know, things are quite busy for you. I really appreciate you taking your time to rewatch all of this sort of stuff. Uh, thank you, everyone listening at home or on the train or wherever you happen to be right now. Thank you so much for joining us. I will put links to everybody's social media and stuff in the show notes. Appreciate you lending me your ears as ever and appreciate you taking the time to listen and support the show. The Bondathon will continue next month with Goldfinger. Make sure you don't miss a thing by hitting that subscribe button and I will see you on the next one.